good morning. So maybe you saw the, uh, the title of our sermon today, Missions Sunday in the Land of the Nuns. No, this is not a Netflix original, uh, The Land of the Walking Dead or something like that. But it is uh, a title that I hope got your attention. Let, let me try to explain it this way. Let's just imagine, uh, as, as perhaps you don't know, this is our Mission Sunday. And so uh, this is your Mission Sunday sermon. And um, imagine now, though, you were experiencing Mission Sunday as a church, but you're situated in, say, Indonesia, which, of course, is uh, predominantly Muslim. Or India, which is predominantly Hindu. Or China, which is predominantly Buddhist. Now, what would you be focusing on? What would your focus be for, quote, Mission Sunday? Sending missionaries to another country or a missionary training course? Hmm, just doesn't sound quite right, does it? Isn't that where you would send missionaries from a Christendom perspective? I mean, is this a false either or? Maybe already you're cynical and you're thinking, what's he, what's he setting up here? Is this a straw man? Perhaps. But I think you're getting the point. I mean, how ridiculous it would be uh, to be located missions and as a church in a place that is a missionary site and to not talk about your own site, your own place, your own sense of mission as if we're going to dole out the, the role of being witnesses and missionary and bring them in to do it for us. Kind of a subcontracting kind of a, an arrangement, you might be thinking. And so today we are here situated in southern New England. And do you understand what that means? We arguably live in one of the most mission-worthy places in all of the world. A context inhabited by the predominant religion of the nuns. Now, I'm putting a title on it, not because I make it up. Uh, that's the title that demographicers and sociologists have put upon uh, the growing trend in our country, and especially, overwhelmingly, in southern New England. You see, for here... What we live in is a place of the nuns, and what I mean by that, it's, it's those who would mark in the box no religious affiliation in any kind of a poll, no religious affiliation. Now, this is significant because it's been in a historic and an amazing trend. I mean, not even a decade ago, Somewhere in the 30% range would have been the checked box nuns. No religious affiliation. You know what it is now? In America? Don't, don't think of New England, which is an incredibly microcosm of nuns in America, but 78%. These are people who grew up in some religious affiliation, most of them, who in just a few, just a short, almost hardly even a generation, has transferred from, I'm Baptist, I'm Presbyterian, I'm Episcopal, I'm whatever, even I'm Christian, to no religious affiliation. 
Now, what's significant about this historic number of Americans who are claiming this no religious affiliation is that when asked to state their religious identity and more and more embracing, they are embracing spirituality. That is, an alternative religious brand is emerging. It is a religious brand to be a nun. That's the thing I want you to think about. We think of, again, Indonesia, China, some of these, those are the, the most saturated of those certain religious identities, and we come back into the world and we think of ourselves as secular, a secular America. And to be sure, there's, there's aspects of secularization, taking God out of the public place, God being a kind of taboo thing, but, but that's not really where the religious affiliation of most of the people we interact with are. Rather, we are in this demographic, again, called the nuns. But here's the thing. It is an alternative religious brand that is not tradition-specific, but is more in line with, interestingly and not so ironically, the democratic spirit of modern individualism, a kind of amalgam of religious tastes and a consumer-esque selection of different aspects of religions taking from multiple global religions. A yoga spirituality here, a disciplined spirituality there, and you start patching together in a very highly individualized way a kind of spirituality. Now, if you think back to the ancient, what used to be described as ancient paganism. I use that as a historic term. Uh, this is what we live in. You think of the Canaanites or the Greeks. It wasn't a place of no gods when, when Paul went to the Areopagus in chapter 16 of Acts. It was the place of multiple, a plethora of gods. And all these gods now being patched together in a situational basis, which was the spirituality of the people of that day. Indeed, it's historic. From 30% to 78%, we now live in the land, you could say of the nons, or you could say of the individualized gods. Now, try to explain this a little bit. One professor at Emory describes this, the, religious, the rise of religious nuns, the end of religion as we know it. Let me try to illustrate this a little bit. Peter Jones tells the story of a church that was once 9,000 strong. You want to call that strong? I'm not sure I would. <laughs> but 9,000 strong 30 years ago, but today is 100 people weak. And then he wonders, how did that happen? And he picked up one of their most recent campaigns. That is, they, at great expense, funded a campaign that centered around a debate, a debate between an atheist and a Christian. And no one showed up. It was boring. It was not interesting. Why? Well, the quote that I mentioned in the preface there, Peter says it this way, the church did not know that atheism, popular a generation ago, is virtually dead today. 
the church believed that people are either Christians or atheists. Actually, and I love this line, their neighbors were very spiritual people who spent great amounts of time praying. Maybe not in the conventional way of bowing your knees or sitting at the edge of a bed, but praying, talking, whispering, thinking, clamoring. And he says, these are people who spent great amounts of time praying but had no idea to whom. Acts 16. Behold, I see that you're a religious people, says Paul. Gods are everywhere, and yet you seem to pray to a God with no name. That's where we are. We are living in the land of the nuns. And so it begs the question, living in southern New England, what would it mean for the church to rediscover herself as a successor to Israel, wherein we've heard read today that God's vision for us is to be in succession to Israel the priesthood of God among the nations. Very explicitly, our passage in Peter taps into a very significant tradition or trajectory that begins in actually Genesis 1, when God appointed humanity to be priest under the rubric of the image of God, the imaging, the witnessing, the reflecting of God. And there, immediately thereafter, making the statement to be fruitful and multiply, and we have so botched this stuff. Because everywhere you see that line, and it will happen in every successive generation, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, it goes on and on, repeated over and over, and over and over through religious history, we find that what is meant by this great commission of Genesis is exactly what Peter's telling us. So let's stop and pray and let's, let's have some fun rediscovering ourselves in this incredible historic trajectory of being priest unto God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day and a day that we do want to remember and pray for our world. Certainly we want to have a global perspective and know, Lord, that you are at work in all places and lands and everywhere there's the need of Jesus Christ. And yet, Lord, Particularly today, we focus on, on the world you have called us to. We pray, Lord, that we would not hide behind a spirituality of sending missionaries, that we ourselves would rediscover the mission field and us as the missionaries. Help us, Lord, now in this endeavor, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, first of all, again, I just can't reiterate how prominent what some have described, and maybe you've heard this term, the Great Commission is through Scripture. Many of you might think of the Great Commission if you've been around the church, you've been to a missions conference or something like that, and, and you immediately, of course, will go to Matthew 28, go ye therefore into all the world, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them all things which I've commanded, and lo, I'm with you forever. There it goes. And that's it. That's true. But we isolate it. And we often... Christendomize it, and all of a sudden it loses the incredible organic integrity of this beautiful vision that God has for us. And so just briefly, I want us to think back, again, to the redemptive historical context where it begins. And yes, it begins at your very identity-giving moment. Who are you, fundamentally, as a human being? Well, here's the words of Scripture. God created him. 
man and woman in his own image, he created them. And God blessed them. Now, what is that? It's an anointing. Don't think of, oh, bless you, tight. Don't think of a wish, a promise. It is a decree. It is a forever in the Old Testament, particularly it's what people would kill for. It's to become the possession of God. To have his name put upon them is to be blessed with the divine benediction. And here this bless them is clearly related to a kind of ordination service in Genesis. I wish I had time to demonstrate that to you because I know we have rationalized, taken this through the rationalistic grid of modernity and the enlightenment idea and we think of the image of God and we start contrasting ourselves to animals. Oh, we're intelligent. We have rational. We have consciousness. It has nothing to do with this passage whatsoever. This passage is a redemptive, historically located passage about who we are in a story of redemption. We are the image of God, it says. And God said to them, therefore, he blessed them, he anointed them, he put the Holy Spirit we saw upon them by breathing into them, and he says this, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Now, again, you take it out of its context and you're thinking, oh, let's go garden today. And perhaps there's an element of that too, but to, to re-eden the world. But no, if you go back and look at the way these Hebrew words are used, they are all identified with the very commission of God to his people to see the nations drawn into Eden, Eden to expand to the whole world, Eden being the very temple presence of God. And you see that particularly in the words to fill and subdue, which are is words that are specifically used to describe the role of a priest in the temple. For instance, fruitful and multiply with an explicit reference now not to fruit in the ground, but all nations. Specifically, if you link those three things together, fruitful, multiplied nations being drawn to the glory of God, you see it in Noah, chapter 8 of Genesis 17. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And he goes on, and be fruitful and multiply on all the earth. This whole endeavor of, of preserving the, the holy possession of God. You see it in Abraham when he's sent out to a promised land. And he goes, the promise, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you nations. I will bring the nations to you. And kings shall come from you. I won't read the rest. You see it in Genesis 28 in Jacob. You see it in Genesis 47 in Joseph. You see it in Exodus verse chapter 1 in Moses. And that now brings us to this language that our text begins to refer to. Exodus 19, the Great Commission. Listen to the way he says it. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the Israelites, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. We heard it read. I'm reading it again. I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, what's your purpose? What is it you're called to do? If you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be a treasured possession. This is the quote that we're using in Peter. Out of all the peoples, indeed, the whole earth is mine. Now, where's his vision going? He's envisioning God is all 
the nations, all the people, being drawn under his exclusive lordship. But you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. These are the words that I speak to you this day. Boom. What I'm trying to say here is, before we even get into the prophetic history and the New Testament history, that we're defining who are you, person sitting in the room? What were you made to be? You were made to be a priest, a priest unto God, participating in a corporate communal priestly nation or community, a temple of God, whose purpose was fundamentally evangelistic. At the core, this is not a sideshow. This is not a what really strong Christians do. This is an identity statement of who we are, our very purpose in life. Isaiah picks this up. He speaks of strangers that will stand and feed your flocks, foreigners that will be till your land and dress your vines, but you shall be called priests unto the Lord. You shall be called ministers of our God. And he's speaking to that people of Israel. It's not talking to a little group over here of, 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 of priests in the vocational sense of that word. You shall enjoy the wealth of the nations and their riches you shall glory. Their descendants shall be known among the nations. There it is again. And their offsprings among the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge that they are the people to whom the Lord has blessed. There's that word blessed again. Putting the benediction of God's grace upon them. He blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and to fill and subdue the whole world. With what? The glory of God. His redemptive benediction. So that brings us to 1 Peter 2.9. But I wanted you to see it in context. This is not just a singular idea. This is not just something that kind of shows up and Peter's got an aha moment. This is so deep. Again, who are you, humanity? You are a priest, fundamentally. That is your purpose for existence. You are the image of God. Again, the image language is used of the priestly ephod that would reflect from the earth into the world the glory of God and the very image of that in that robe that he would wear. So you are now a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. In order that, notice the purpose clause. In order that, why are you a royal priesthood, a holy nation? In order that, you may proclaim the mystery of the acts of him who called you out of darkness into light. The church is here envisioned as a temple. The mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light is the very light that the temple shone in a typological way in the Old Testament, a lamp that could never go out. You know, somebody, we were talking the other day, walking down the street, we somehow were talking about the priest and the temple and all that, and I said, you know, it's, it's, it's really crazy if you stop to think about it, but a, a good part of every day of an Old Testament priest was making oil. Just making oil. I mean, we think of priests as, you know, clean hand. and No, these guys would have gotten in there and made oil. Because it was one of the most sacred of all tasks of a priest to never let 
the lamp go out. That lamp that shone the whole world is like a beacon, a lighthouse that stood up above the temple from the court of the Gentiles, this lamp. Interesting. A lamp from the court of the Gentiles beckoning all the Gentiles, all the nations, come here, come here, come here. Christ, of course, alludes to this when he speaks to Israel and he says, you are like a, a lamp that's put up on a, on a hill and it's gone out. You cease to be a missionary community. So with this in mind, very quickly, a couple of points, and then we'll bring it home. I want you to notice, particularly in our passage, that there is this very important link between living stone and living stones, plural. Again, notice the language. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, and that's related to, in the very first verse, a living stone in verse 4. The living stone being the cornerstone being, who do you think? Well, it's not you and me. It's Christ who's the cornerstone. That is the very, the very structure-forming, structure-founding identity of this temple that he has in mind that's being constructed by stones. And there is a cornerstone. Christ being, of course, that cornerstone. Christ is described here as precious to God. Very important. And notice how that then relates to the fact that, that he goes on and describes how that which is precious to God, the cornerstone, how he came into the world, the light into the world, but the world did not accept him. Even the house of Israel has rejected him. The very cornerstone it's described has become a stumbling stone for those who would reject Christ. The whole world according to Peter. The whole world coming out of this major trajectory of what life is about. It really comes down to there's two kinds of people. There are those who respond and receive the cornerstone, wherein they are blessed as God's holy possession, or there are those who stumble over the cornerstone, rejected by God. That's the cosmology of the redemptive historical perspective. There's just two kinds of folks. There are those who are Israelites, the true Israel, and there's those who are not. Those who are God's possessions, redemptively speaking, anointed of God by his spirit, blessed by the holy benediction of grace and peace, or there are those that are not. It's really that simple. And this is important, as we're going to see. And yet notice how the living stone, singular, now in verse 4 goes to speak about the living stones. Let me read it again. As you have come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves. Kevin's the first guy I can point out. Kevin, he's talking to. Lana, he's talking to. And I just go right through it, Peggy, and go off into it. You, each one of us, you are like living stones, plural, who are being built up as a spiritual house, the temple of God, it's clearly spoken of here, a holy priesthood. You've heard maybe the priesthood of all believers, this is the place you go. It's not saying that every believer is a prophet. This isn't the prophecyhood of all believers those uniquely called, perhaps, to 
to bring about and administer the word of God. But they are, we're all priests. Witnesses, like lights in the midst of the world, imaging this idea of light and darkness that's been brought up here. To, and what do we do? We offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And what are those spiritual sacrifices? Paul makes it clear in chapter 16. And it's made clear here in order that, remember the, in order that phrase, that we might witness to the world the glorious redemption of God through Jesus Christ. We're witnesses. That's what a priest does. It images. It reflects. It witnesses to the world. And so here we have it. Christ is precious. No less even though some are scandalized by him since prophecy promised as much, he is precious to God. And therein derives our preciousness. For we are then called precious insofar as we are stones in sync with, if you could think of a building. If you're in the, the blueprint of the cornerstone, the cornerstone which directs and guides and direct, you know, all, the, all of the other stones, then we are also precious. It is, by way of a footnote, a kind of interesting observation that when we pray in the name of Jesus, why do we do that? Because we know our prayers are precious to God insofar as they are prayers in Christ. For, you know, remember, the story of redemption is what happened is Adam forsook his priestly ministry. He failed to subdue and fill the earth. Instead, he took the bait. He was subdued by an anti-Christ kind of, anti-God kind of spirituality, which would make him an enemy of God, not precious. It comes right down to this great commission. Where are you in it? And that's, of course, the story of God's redemption, graciously restoring Adam into the precious line by virtue of clothing him with the righteousness of a sacrificed, you know, uh, offering, which was the clothing of the, of the sacrificed animals anticipating Christ. And I've said it before, I believe G, uh, Adam is a born-again Christian. I'll put it in those terms. Insofar as he believed the promise that was given to him, that through the seed of a woman would come that which would redeem the whole world in Jesus Christ. And he named his wife after that event. Eve, the mother of life, and I don't think he means the mother of uh, biological life. He means Eve, the mother of new life. And so we get this big picture, don't we? Unbelievers, those who are scandalized by Christ, believers who are honored and precious and called here in our passage, the elect race or family or tribe, that chosen. All this language is incredibly endearing. Don't see it in your rationalistic, you know, philosophical debates, we lose the point. You're chosen. You're the child that God wants. He chose you. You're precious. That's the language here. It's all about this preciousness of Christ, his son, and those who are in Christ by grace through faith alone are precious in Christ to God as well as part of this holy family, this holy Israel, this priesthood. And we have a mission well, let's take it home. Here we are living in southern New England. So what would it mean for the church to rediscover herself as the successor to Israel as a priest unto the Lord? 
in order to proclaim the mysteries, the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Let me try to say it this way. If we have one mission statement at all, it's often utilized, what is your purpose, you know, great chief in a man to glorify God? That's right. But we've ripped that out of its context. To glorify God is to image God, to be the, the reflection of God, and it's nonsensical to rip it out of its priestly context, wherein the whole purpose of the glorifying is to draw the nations unto God. Again, this language of light. You think, well, how serious was this light as the purpose of Israel? Well, think about it. For that day forward, there would never be a time when Israel would have salvation without the, quote, Shekinah glory or the light symbolized typologically in the midst of the temple. When they were a roaring, uh, you know, wandering, nomadic community with the tabernacle, there would be this, this establishment of a tent, the temple tent, and there would be a, a, a cosmological moment when there would be a bright light that would descend upon this temple to shine the light unto the nations. Here's where you come. This is where you go in your spiritual pilgrimage. And so, what is our mission statement? Let me put it something like this. We can say this. We believe that the church, the household of God, the temple of God, is an essential element of the gospel unto which people of every tribe and nation are to be welcomed. We affirm that every follower of Christ is called to be a witness to the truth and grace of God revealed in Jesus Christ in both their word and their deed. That would be what I would describe as a mission statement. For us living here in New England, a kind of commission statement, asking for the anointing of God's Holy Spirit, filled with the Spirit to do it. Now let's just look at a couple of boundaries or barriers in closing. What, what, what is, let's stop and think about this a little bit. What inhibits you? What are the things that, that seem to get in the way of, of, of your being empowered to Believe in yourself as who you are, at the core of who you are as a Christian, to where you would think of yourself as, quote, an evangelist, if I may use that term. I'd rather use the word witness. I think evangelist in the scripture is a church planner, particularly. But here's a couple of barriers. There can be four of them. Conviction, knowledge, isolation, and expectations, if you're taking notes. Very quickly. First of all, this issue of conviction. I'm convinced that most of us really don't put this in the category of this is a religious conviction, to be a witness. In other words, that evangelism is not a church growth strategy. That's not what it is. This is not about building an organization for the sake of building an organization and we're out there proselytizing it. It's much deeper than that. Evangelism, if you want to put it in that term, being a witness unto Christ in an empowered and, and intentional and proactive manner as to the very purpose of our existence is an existential kind of a thing. It's what we're made to do and be. It is how we follow him. 
Sharing the gospel is a conviction. It's an obedience issue. It's not an issue of, oh, you know, if it happens. We should put it in other words, if it's a conviction, we ought to confess our sin. That we don't witness. That we aren't light unto the world. And surely we can confess that sin, all of us. We fall short of being that light. But it is a sin. This is not just a kind of, I don't know, what, what, else, what would it be? Sin and then just best practice. Or something that we do only when we graduate through, well, you first have to have spiritual leadership training. Then you have to have, you have a confessional theology training. And then you have to have an evangelism training. Oh, and then I get a little, little degree and now I'm, I'm, I can be called a witness. No, it's not like that. It started with when you were born. It's who you are. It's what you were made to be, to glorify God as a witness, as a light unto the world. We've seen this already. It's interesting how the Great Commission was given to the 11. It wasn't given to a person. It was given to the 11. But who are the 11? Minus Judas at this time. Matthew 28 I'm thinking about. Well, the 11 are the very ones that just a few verses, uh, passages earlier were described as the very people who would build this church. Clearly a church which envisioned as a temple where things be bound on earth as they are in heaven and loosed on earth as they are in heaven. That's a very temple-esque thing. Given the keys of the kingdom of God to unlock the door to the nations coming into this temple. That was actually a ceremonial thing in the Old Testament for the priest to be given the keys to the door. Even in some Christian churches today, when a pastor takes a church, there's a ceremony and they will offer him the key to the door. That's a key that's given to all of us. Even if our code over there is only for about 20 of you. But it's all of us given that key. And so first of all, we got to get over the fact that, that sometimes we pass this idea away as, well, I know I'm not supposed to have adultery, but we would never think of not fulfilling the purpose of being a witness unto the world. And so... The purpose of the apostles was to found a church of priestly stones. In the words of Peter, you see. Peter got it. He got the great commission over there in Matthew 28. And he writes chapter 1, verse 2 in Peter. And he, he, he puts it upon the whole community to be the living stones. In order to proclaim, the word proclaim, the mysteries of God's grace in Christ. Therefore, it's not a commission to any one individual. It's not a commission to a special class of people acting on behalf of everybody else. Professionalism in the clergy, for instance, or Catholic apostolic succession ideas, super Protestant pastor idea. No. Rather, a commission to the church corporately built on an apostolic foundation with Christ as the cornerstone. Many individuals acting severally throughout the day, throughout the week, coming together corporately and individually in organic unity, multifaceted gifts. You get the picture? Quite literally, we can fulfill this today the same way they fulfilled it when those came to Christ in Matthew and his gospel. Over and over again, the word, the idea, is they would be saved. And then it was just so, it was not about a, a, a how I say it, a, a policy decision. It wasn't a... Um, a duty, 
The problem in the gospel is that Jesus was wanting to kind of moderate, moderate his glory in a way that it would not take away from his purpose to die. So he's trying to kind of squash a little bit his glory, the, the way it was being mishandled, particularly in the early years of his ministry where, where people were looking for him to be a political messiah. Oh, we don't have that problem anymore, right? And so he'd say, hey, don't go tell anybody. But what did they do? It was just, it was just to be authentic. They couldn't stop. To be authentically me, I had to do it. They walk out, and over and over and over again, you get these descriptions of how it was that they were bringing people to Christ. They would go out and say, look at what I've discovered. Look at what has happened to me. I was broken. I was hurt. I was this. I was that. And I have come to this grace of salvation, and, and it's just who I am. I can't stop it. It's it's. It's radioactively coming out of these people, and they would go, and they'd hear, let me bring you to him. Like the, the woman at the well, bringing the, the folks to the well to see Jesus. That's what it means to be a witness. Where would you bring people today? Hey, let me tell you what's happened to me. Let me tell you what I'm learning. And let me take you to where you can also be introduced to this person, Jesus Christ. Where would you take them today? Of course. The temple, where you place you would take them before Christ came, anticipating Christ. You would take them to the church, which Christ himself describes as the body of Christ. The presence of Christ in the midst of the nuns. Here we are. It's an amazing thing. We're called to be imitators of the apostles and of the Lord, we're told in 1 Thessalonians. That we might become an example to all unbelievers, we're told. And to serve as a living and to turn them from their idols to the true and living God. All this is in 1 Thessalonians 1, 5 and following. So the first barrier is, I think, conviction. Do you have that as a conviction? Have you heard enough today to say, you know what? It would be a sin for me to neglect this calling of who I am. You want to be authentic? You want to be real? Real to yourself? There's nothing more fundamental that you were made to glorify God among the nations, to bring the nations under his Shekinah light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, as the cornerstone. Second problem you're thinking about now maybe is, okay, I'm getting a little convicted here, but I'm just not very confident. I mean, how do I talk to people about Jesus? I don't know how to do that. Now, there's a couple of things that we need to say here. First of all, I do think people confuse being priests from being prophets. I don't think this should be confused with you're going out and lecturing to people or preaching to people or being a know-it-all to people. The woman of the well was not a know-it-all. She just knew herself and who and what had happened to her. It's to be a witness it's to witness versus preach. I've said to you before, if you're coming to church on a regular basis, I can assure you, you probably know more on your pinky about the Christian faith, the doctrine of the faith, Jesus Christ, than the people you work with. More on your pinky. So just go for it. Tell them what you know in the context. Now, I'm going to get to that. How do you do that? I mean, what do you mean? I just walk up tomorrow in the workplace and I say, hey, let me tell you what I know about Jesus. Well, we'll talk about that. 
But there, there's a main way that we see this idea being played out in the scripture among the believers. I read a passage uh, that, that is, is here, and it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any way afflicted with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. That pretty much says it out of 2 Corinthians. What we find throughout the Gospels are people who've been comforted. Call it raised from the dead, maybe. You know, a little thing like that. Well, that's what we've been. Raised from the dead. We were dead. We're experiencing new life, even as we anticipate it, ultimately in, in glory. We've been healed of our blindness. We were once blind, but now we see. That's you if you're a Christian. We were people who were broken, people who were sinful, people who were cursed. Are you in touch with that? Do you understand that? Destined for Hades without God. And now we're alive. Again, it's, it's just to radio, be, radioact, if you will, just what has happened to us as we've reflected on it. And that's the key. James says, confess your sins one to another. Well, maybe that's your tactic. If you're looking for a quote tactic. You, you just, you, you, in the context of conversations, in the, as you're at a bar, as you're at a workplace, as you're at a lunch break, as you're whatever, you're just sharing your brokenness and, and hearing the brokenness of others. I can tell you, everybody can relate to that. Everybody can relate to it. Brokenness with my son, brokenness with my wife, brokenness with my work, brokenness with my God, brokenness, brokenness, brokenness. Curse, curse, curse. It's all around. We have suffered the curse ourselves. We understand it. And so you just begin to explain in a context of a conversation how in some way this curse has been met with Christ. And you say it winsomely and humbly, of course, but it's not that hard. It's like saying, you know, I, I went to the doctor and I, I went to this doctor and he told me I might be insane because I thought I had limes and there was no evidentialist proof in my blood. I go to a Lyme specialist and she laughs at that doctor and says, he doesn't know what he's talking about. You've got Lyme and praise God I met her. Now what happened? Just yesterday, somebody's talking about, I think I've got Lyme. I'm saying, hey, go to this doctor. She knows about Lyme. She can heal you of Lyme. It's just that simple. It's what we do all the time. You know, I was talking to Trey the other day about the work that he does with tutoring, and, and I've already got somebody in mind going, wow, I didn't know he did that kind of work with, with some kids, you know, who are having some learning disability, and I know someone who's struggling with that. What am I going to do? I'm going to sit around and say, yeah, I'm going to talk maybe a little bit how We've struggled some with that. And, 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 uh, boy, there's this guy down there in Westport who's, who's dealing with this, and he seems to be doing a really cool job. Wasn't that a great free announcement? I don't know if you're your trick. But, but the point being is that, that, yeah, that's what we do. Why is Christ any different? That's how we do it. The barrier of confidence. You have every reason to be confident. Just be yourself. If you're a Christian, just talk about that and who you are in Christ and what he has done for you and bring them to where they can find them there as well. Third, the barrier of isolation. You know, if you think of yourself, and this is the problem of the individualistic uh, spin on the Great Commission, it will oppress you. 
the Great Commission will be very oppressing to you because you'll be thinking, I got to be all things to all people all the time. I think some pastors have that little syndrome as well. I got to be all things to all people at all times. That's one of the first things you hear about in, in terms of pastoral burnout. Nope, you don't. Not according to Paul, not according to the Great Commission. You're a royal, holy nation. You're a temple. That is to say, you're one stone. Living, yes, but not the only stone. There are many stones that are living. And so you need to think more communally. You need to think about not bearing the weight of this person's salvation with every time I have a conversation with them. Take a deep breath. Enjoy the conversations you have with your friends who are unbelievers. Being bold, being empowered to talk about what it is that you've discovered and understand in the Christian faith in the context of your own receiving comfort from him. But know that it doesn't have to all get packed into one conversation. It doesn't all have to get packed on you. Thank God for the community of faith. I think about that with my children. Thank God. How important you were to my children, Israel. How they grew up and when they went through their stages and looking for authenticity in Christianity, they found it in some of you in ways that at the time they could not find it in me or my wife. Praise God for you. You know, Paul talks about this a lot. And so what I'm saying is that you're not the evangelist. The church is the evangelist. And Paul makes this point when he uses priestly language, when he says, present yourselves, present your body, living holy sacrifice as an act of worship. That's all found in Romans 12, verses 4, where he says, hey, there's one body of Christ. You're not a body of Christ. You're not a body of Christ. You're not a body of Christ. You are the body of Christ. Many members, and all the members have not the same function. Some will be this, some will be that. And he goes on to say, but we who are many are one body in Christ and individually who are members always of one another. We play our parts. Some of you do some things here, some things do, people do other thing here. But think of that also in your witness. How important it is that we as a church make ourselves hospitable to the world. Help us to do that. Help us. Help one another to do that. This is your job, my job, that this church would be a place that's accessible where the door, the gate of the Gentiles that was in the temple is wide open. How does that change our vernacular? How does that change our Christian clickishness? Are we talking about Christian bands and Christian this and Christian? How are we engaging the world even when we meet together and worship today with the world here in this room? We need to think about that. Because it's a team effort. It says the fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him. They, all the people, brought him to the sick, and off it goes. And finally, wrong expectations. Sometimes I think we think that if I just do it all right, then everybody will come to Christ. You know, that's not our metric. You're going to be surprised by this. My metric for this church is not how many people get saved. My metric for myself is not how many people have I led to Christ. Why would I say that? Because ultimately the, the, the evangelist is a divine evangelist. One of my professors wrote a book called The Divine Evangelist. You know who it was about? The Holy Spirit. 
The divine evangelist is not you. So don't, don't, you know, don't lose heart. You know, Paul would say things like this. I watered, but blank, you know, no, I, I planted and, and Paul's watered. You see what's going on there? There's a story in everybody's life, and you might be the, plant, the seed planter. Someone else comes along and waters it. Someone else comes along and harvests it. You know, I think when we get to heaven, try to live like that. Think, God, I just want to be a part of the story. I want to be one of those things. Maybe I'm the planter. Maybe I'm the waterer. Maybe I'm the tiller. Maybe I'm the, you know, you just go through the, the, the kind of the, the language there. But when you go to heaven, what I want you to see from your life is how you were one of the links of millions maybe of links in a person's life that brought them to the throne of glory standing next to you worshiping God. I believe that more than you know. That we, if we could see this as God sees it, you're going to go to heaven one day, those who are empowered, emboldened to be witnesses unto Christ, and maybe they didn't take the, from planting to harvesting, but they were there in that strain. And that's the expectation. For only the Holy Spirit, ultimately, can bring it home, can seal the deal. Only the Holy Spirit. So our metrics is not how many people did I bring to Christ today. My metric is today did I take every opportunity I was given to bring Christ up. To begin to put Christ's name, his anointing name, into the conversation. Particularly in relationship to the way in which it's authentic to you as you felt the comfort of God. That's what I think Mission Sunday would look like in India and in New Haven, Connecticut.